You're in the water loop. Hi, you are in the Waterloop. This is Travis. I am joined by a uh, longtime colleague and friend, Chuck Fox, with he's the executive director of Oceans Five. Chuck, how are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing good, Travis. Great to see you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you. I I was uh, doing a little math or looking at the calendar and realized it's actually been at least ten years now that uh, since our days at the Chesapeake Bay and working on the the pollution diet for the bay and uh the president's executive order 10 years it's amazing <laughs> so the good news to report is the chesapeake is actually doing incredibly well because of that it's, it's really truly a remarkable success story and i think is truly a model now for the rest of the country it's great yeah i've been watching definitely the the reports on the health and it's it's awesome to see it uh to moving moving upwards so yeah. good good stuff um so oceans five what what is this organization um, we're what they call an international funders collaborative. And what that means is a, a group of very generous and strategic institutions come together and they want to make grants to try and improve the health of the world's oceans. Um, we started about 10 years ago with four organizations um, and today we have 15 organizations and we're growing. Uh, we have projects in probably close to 50 countries around the world. Uh, we're focused mostly on trying to end overfishing and to establish what we call marine protected areas. But it's a, it's a great group of donors. Um, they're really committed to trying to have an impact on the world and we seem to be having some success. Fantastic. So let's start with the big, the big picture. Um, what is the state of the world's fisheries? Uh, I, I think there's a lot in the news and people see articles and um, hear about the health of, of different fisheries, but what's, what's the assessment um, since you're so close to the issue? So uh, when you step back and look at the world's oceans, the biggest threat to them probably by far is climate change. You know, the, the reality is that the, um, the oceans are warming. They're warming faster than scientists ever thought. And sadly, this is going to have huge implications for the world's coral reefs. Uh, we're going to see very significant migrations of fish as the temperatures change and the habitats change. But if you step back and, and say, well, climate change is the number one threat, what's the second biggest threat to the oceans? That is probably overfishing. Mm -hmm. And it is something that is still happening systemically throughout the oceans. Um, there are examples of countries doing better and better jobs of managing their fisheries. The United States is actually one of them. Um, Europe is getting better and better. Uh, some of the stalwart improvements have happened in places like Iceland and Norway and Australia, um, New Zealand. But pretty much a lot of the rest of the world is in a situation where they're, they're either not managing most of their fisheries, they're only managing a small amount of their fisheries. And in many, many parts of the world, certainly most of the developing world, there's literally no fisheries management that happens at all. Um, and the unfortunate reality, what this means is there's less fish in the sea, which means less fish for people to eat. And it really changes the whole balance of the ecosystem because it is so systemic uh, throughout the world. Is overfishing as simple as just taking out more fish than can be maintained? You're, you're taking out too many. The population can't keep itself up at a, a healthy balance level. It's that simple? Correct. Correct. And what it's like a bank account. You know, if you keep your principal in your bank account, you'll be making interest and you will get more and more money over time. 
If you start depleting that principal, you will not get any interest and eventually you're going to run out of money. And that's essentially what goes on in the world's oceans. Now, where it gets a little more tricky is you could imagine, for example, a parrotfish. Uh, many people might know this as a colorful reef fish. And it's a very attractive fish for many um, people in the Caribbean, uh, particularly spear fishermen. They love going after parrotfish. They taste good. The unfortunate reality, though, is parrotfish have a really fundamental role in an ecosystem. They're herbivores. They are the, the fish that cleans up the algae off the coral reef. And once you take those herbivores out of that ecosystem, the whole reef changes and whole ecosystem dynamic changes. So what we see with fisheries management, it isn't just about managing single species anymore. We really have to look at the totality of the ecosystem because just by overfishing one fish, you can actually have cascading effects throughout the ecosystem. Yeah, sure. That that whole food chain and the way everything works together. Are there any statistics on just, you know, what percent of the world's fisheries are, you know, um, are unsustainable right now or on the verge of collapse or whatever it might be? Yes. Um, and there are, um, as you would imagine, there's lots of different opinions on this. Um, the official opinion by what's called the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, has upwards, well, probably about 80% of the world's fisheries are either overfished or at maximum capacity, meaning mm. you can't take any more of those fish or they are actually already subject to overfishing. Um, there's a lot of other studies that have been down out there that suggest the problem is far, far worse. Um, you know, essentially, even FAO would agree with this. We haven't had an increase in wild capture fisheries probably since the mid-1980s, early 1990s. We've been kind of at a plateau, despite the reality that there's been more increased effort in trying to get fish. And this is a classic case, a classic sign of overfishing. Now, the, one of the most important things to keep in mind is that these global pictures that I've given you of a kind of a global world that is either at the verge or already overfishing in many cases, these are for only the fisheries where we have decent data. And mm. the vast majority of the fish in the world we have no data on. And there, it, most of the science suggests that for coastal fisheries, these reef fisheries, or fisheries imagined in Asia or in Africa, um, these are places where there's very little data, and all the data that we have suggests they are massively overfished. Yeah. Um, the thing that, that jumps out at me is just the challenge of dealing with fishing uh, with the world's oceans, just how vast they are. I mean, the, the, you know, the scale of the ocean and uh, how hard it is to keep track of what's happening out there, where boats are going, what fishing fleets are doing. And it's just a such a massive area. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the I mean, it, it is, it's 70% of the planet is oceans. And, you know, that's a lot of planet. And um, <laughs> the other amazing thing about this is, Half of that is what we call the high seas, meaning it is beyond national jurisdiction. And so while there are some frameworks and the law of the sea, and there are some basic um, you know, outlines of, of what you would consider management regimes, by and large, half of the planet is at least under-regulated, and some people would say completely unregulated for a lot of the kind of fishing activity that we're talking about. And so it is an incredibly, truly massive scale. And to add some, uh, some statistics that is often lost, um, uh. for example, 90% of the world's fishermen are located in Asia. Wow. And so we think about situations of the coast of Africa, Mozambique, or West Africa and Senegal, and the, you know, 
large numbers of fishermen and the overfishing pressures, that's all true. But the reality is in Asia, from China, really all the way down through Vietnam, Indonesia, over into India and into the Indian Ocean, this is where the world's fishing, the epicenter of world's fishing is. And sadly, it is where we have some of the poorest management. The South China Sea and just the incredible pressures and overfishing going on in that area. Is that right? Yes. Um, a country like Vietnam literally has millions of fishermen, millions of fishermen. And, you know, you compare this to, you know, places that we know well. We grew up here in the East Coast of the United States and we think of, you know, Gloucester, Massachusetts as being the kind of the epicenter of New England fishermen. And it's true. And there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people when you start thinking of all the knock-on that are involved in the fishing sector. But this is a small village in most of, of Asia. And the mm -hmm. impact, as you could imagine, of millions of fishermen from Vietnam as they go further and further out to sea looking for a dwindling number of fish, it becomes quite a, um, a geopolitical issue too. Yeah, uh, and is that that's probably then one of the areas where there's not as as good of a framework, as much progress on some of these measures, like you mentioned, is happening with the U.S. and Scandinavia and so forth. That's that's a real area where a group like yours and and people you work with are focusing. Then I imagine. Correct. Uh, we actually have, um, we do a lot of grant making in Asia. We have grants in China and Japan and Korea and Taiwan and Indonesia. And a lot of the work that my organization is doing, a lot of the work that NGOs are doing, and a lot of work that governments are doing is trying to tackle what we call IUU fishing. Um, it's, a, it's an acronym that stands for illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. And you can imagine that having illegal fishing is bad or even unregulated or unreported fishing is bad because you really have no way of managing the fisheries. And so this, what we call IUU fishing, has been the focus of a lot of attention of philanthropic institutions like my own, as well as governments as well. Um, and the good news is there's lots of things that we can do to solve this problem. Um, you know, today's new technology, we can identify where boats are fishing. Uh, we can identify the owners of the boats in many cases. And there's all kinds of new electronic monitoring techniques so that you can keep track of the fish that's being caught. And so regimes are increasingly being built that allow us to track and, and highlight what fishing activity is going on, which really helps improve fisheries management. I figured that uh, in our digital era here, that technology had to be a part of the solution and approach and um, even using what satellites and, and kind of seeing what's going on out there that way, huh? Yeah, um, it's fascinating. I'll tell you, you know, we uh, came from, both of us came from EPA and, and we had this, um, it was kind of a culture of right to know. And, and we just kind of understood that, you know, if you had a, a steel mill or a big power plant the public had a right to know what was coming out of that smokestack or that discharge pipe. And, and that the culture of, of openness and transparency of information, it was not one that applied to the natural resources world or to the fisheries world. And so it's in fact the opposite of this. And in the fisheries world, it's, it's truly opaque. And you, 
you know, the, sometimes the fishing companies will hide behind multiple layers of ownership, so you don't even know who owns a vessel. Uh, there's oftentimes great secrecy about where the boat is. Um, in theory, they don't want to divulge secret uh, places where they might be catching a lot of fish would be the theory about all that. It's not really true. Uh, everyone knows where everyone else is fishing. But it is a, a culture of, of secrecy um, that also goes into the uh, the supply chain. So you can imagine all the middlemen in, in a seafood business, somebody who lands the fish, then somebody who buys the fish and sells it to somebody else, who then sells it to somebody else, and eventually it comes to Walmart and we buy it. And all of these middlemen, um, none of them really want to be transparent either because their job and their future is based on their ability to have that information only for themselves. And so what you find is this whole sector, uh, compared to anyone I've ever seen, is more opaque than, than certainly even the produce section or certainly anything we're used to in pollution control. And I think that's very much of the future right now in fisheries is how do we essentially light up fishing activity? How do we help the world understand what's happening where and who's doing it, because the theory is that this will improve compliance, it'll strengthen scientific information, and in some cases it'll help reduce corruption, which unfortunately is still very real in the fishery sector. Yeah, interesting. I want to hear a little bit more about some of the approaches that the conservation community is taking to, to address this. Uh, you mentioned some of the technology and the IUU issues and so forth, but could you talk a little bit more about some of the some of the approaches and, and ways you're trying to address this? You mentioned marine protected areas, which I, I definitely like to hear about. Yeah, so um, one of the things, and, and this was um, a little bit of an eye opener to me in the fishery sector is, the oceans are a public place. Um, you know, it's not unlike a national park in a way. Um, it is governments that control and manage the activities that occur in this public place. And so what we learned early on was if you wanted to implement conservation measures in the ocean, you really had to focus on on working with governments to get governments being willing to uh, take actions to protect the ocean. And so a lot of our grant making is supporting um, groups in countries who are working with their governments to try and influence the development of policy or influence the establishment of marine protected areas. Um, and so a lot of uh, the work that we do is we evaluate proposals uh, that might come from an organization in say the Cook Islands and they're interested in working with their government and working with traditional leaders in the Cook Islands to create a marine park. And we then would evaluate this proposal and if it meets certain criteria, we would then provide them funding to work with the government. And what does that look like? Well, in this case, it might involve consultations that take place in communities and in some of the outer islands. Um, for example, in the Cook Islands in particular, there were threats of foreign fishing fleets coming into some of the outer islands. And we found that some of the residents of the outer islands really wanted to have areas around their islands that they would manage and that would not actually be subject to foreign fishing pressures because they wanted to be able to manage those. Um, in the Cook Islands, they had a very active potential seabed mining industry. And there was a very strong interest of some of the residents to only allow the mining to happen in certain places and not have it happen throughout the Cook Islands. So in this case, our grant um, to this local NGO was used to do cons consultations with communities, which in some cases is not cheap. It, it's more expensive to fly to some of the outer islands in the Cook Islands than it is to fly all the way to Washington, D.C., just because of the nature of the distance and the aircraft and the fueling. Um, some of the um, 
some of the money that we do helps them do the scientific surveys so they know which areas they want to protect. Some of the money that we give will go to support the development of, of uh, policy analysis. What are some of the, the gaps they might have in their laws or in their regulations? And in this case, in the Cook Islands, after three years of, of our grant making, supporting these local NGOs, they worked very closely with the government and the communities. Then they created the Cook Islands Marine Park. And it's a very large uh, protected area that has um, very limited resource extractions, about 50 miles around every one of the islands in the Cook Islands chain. And it's a remarkable success story. Oh, very interesting. So uh, a marine protected area, Explain that a little bit for folks, what that what that exactly means and how it works. So a marine protected area um, can be a lot of different things. Um, some at one end of the spectrum, it's it's a very protected area, like a like a wilderness area we would think of where you're not allowed to do commercial fishing, you're not allowed to do mining. It's it's an area that is really being managed for biodiversity and for its um, kind of its conservation um, purposes. At the other end of a marine protected area could be one that might just limit the most damaging of activities. You could imagine an area that would be off limits to oil drilling. Mm. Um, the example here in the United States is we have a National Marine Sanctuaries Program. And by and large, under the Sanctuaries Program, it restricts the amount of oil and gas development that can happen in these areas, and they call that a sanctuary. Um, most of the sanctuaries in the United States, believe it or not, don't actually have particularly um, different controls on fishing activity. That's not just what is done in the United States in our sanctuary system, but in other countries, when they say that when they use that term marine protected area, um, it means some place that is would be strongly protected where you would not have uh, commercial extractive activities. Um, the planet, the, the, the um, a group called the Convention on Biological Diversity established the goal that by the year 2020, uh, we would have 10% of the planet in a protected area. And all governments around the world who are part of that treaty convention are working to get to that milestone of 10%. But what you find is there's a big difference in what one country thinks of as a protected area versus another. And that's one of the challenges we face in our work today. Um, my organization, we tend to support uh, protected areas that are on the, the stronger side of the spectrum, um, fe feeling that, and the science shows this, that the stronger the protection, the better the ecological and biodiversity benefits that you get from it. Okay, makes sense. I uh, want to talk a little bit about some specifics, I guess, maybe some places uh, and types of uh, marine life. Um, just curious also about sharks and and fishing pressure on sharks um i what's going on i mean i i've just saw some other statistics and stories about the incredible number of of sharks that are killed or caught or you know even just for fins and and so forth so what's what's the going on with the the pressure on the world's shark population from a fishing standpoint and is that something you all are uh you know have involvement with projects on yes we do and in fact um Sharks is a unique species. Um, you know, we know it as this iconic ocean species. With um, you know, growing up watching movies like Jaws, and it, it is true that um, it's a very emotional fish that that sparks fear in some people. Um, there's no question. Um, but it is also, unfortunately, one of the shining examples of what happens with an unregulated, unmanaged fishery. Um, sharks are basically unregulated um, in their catching throughout the world. There's, in this case, there's probably only 
five to 10 countries that have any controls whatsoever on sharks. And other than that, it's basically a free-for-all. And there's no really good estimates, but there's been some approximations. And roughly speaking, it's going to be 800,000 to a million sharks a year are going to be killed for their meat, for their fins, and for their oil, by and large. Um, And as I said, it's a completely unregulated fishery. One of the unique problems, too, with sharks is that, by and large, they reproduce very slowly. Um, Mm. This is a species that often takes many, many years to reach maturity. um, And with the very few exceptions, a lot of these sharks are either uh, critically endangered, threatened, or um, at least on that path to becoming uh, potentially extinct. And it's uh, unfortunately, it's a it's a very sad story. Um, the my organization, we were involved with a, another one of our partners, um, um, a, a gentleman by the name of Leonardo DiCaprio, who you might have heard of. Mm. Oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> Leo, Leo um, Leo's a diver, and Leo, I think, really. Um, heard this story about sharks and wanted to do something about it. And so we were involved with them in creating a a separate funders collaborative that really is just focused on sharks. Mm. And there were several uh, generous and strategic uh, institutions that joined this. Um, uh, Paul Allen Foundation, um, um, a group called the the Helmsley Charitable Trust joined it, a group uh, called the Angel Family Foundation joined it. And there's right now five or six donors that are participating in this shark conservation fund. And their goal is to try and be strategic across the globe of trying to change these numbers and try to improve shark management around the world. Um, And they're having some remarkable early success, but they've only been around a couple of years. And this is an issue that I think we're all going to have to spend a lot more time on in the coming decades. Well, some people might think sharks. I mean, I understand all the the commercial fisheries and fish feed the world's population and so forth. But why is it why is it so important that we protect sharks? You know, big deal, right? These are just predators out there. What, you know, uh, and and they have the the stigma of jaws and so forth. So, I mean, what so why why are sharks important? Um it's a very, um, you know, it's easy to make the terrestrial analogies and to say that you need to have top predators in an ecosystem uh, because otherwise the whole ecosystem changes. And there is some evidence that does suggest that there are some of these cause and effect relationships about uh, sh- declining shark populations. But if you talk to most scientists who really spend a lot of time on this question, um, they don't unfortunately have great answers for this yet, um, which is it's, it's a little bit uh, tricky. Um, there are some cause and effects that you would imagine, but the reality is it's um, in the ocean, it isn't quite so much the pyramid uh, relationship that we think where the, the bigger fish eat the smaller fish, eat the smaller fish, and they just kind of work themselves down this food chain. It's a much more complicated, interconnected web. Um, I think it is fair to say that um, when you do take top predators out of an ecosystem, the ecosystem definitely changes. um, And it's going to have um, knock-on effects throughout that ecosystem. And we have seen examples where, for example, it might change the herbivores that are fishing on a reef and result potentially in increases of algae. Um, That is one um, hypothesis that has been tested and certainly demonstrated in a couple of places. Um, There were some connections that were debunked um, about these relationships, including some some very uh, potentially dangerous ones here on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, There was a theory, for example, for a little while that that um, sharks, um, the decline of sharks was resulting in an increase of rays 
and the increase of rays was then resulting in a decline of oysters and clams because mm. the um, oysters and clams were being fed on by the rays. And therefore, the solution was we needed to uh, increase mortality of rays. We had to get rid of the rays. Um, and so it resulted in what most scientists think of is kind of an exploitation, you know, without any management plans of yet another species, in this case, the cow nose rays throughout the mid-Atlantic. And, and we're seeing some of the effects of that one already. Uh, cow nose rays, sadly, are a lot like sharks. They reproduce late um, and they're, they're not as fecund as some other species. Uh, it's an example of, of, I think, why we always need good science uh, before we make some of these management decisions. Absolutely. Uh, also want to ask you about a, a place, uh, Kiribati, where I think you have been and, and done some work. And uh, for folks that might not have, have heard of it, <laughs> describe this place and uh, you know talk about, I guess, the fisheries there. And I think it's also, this is one of the places that um, sadly is really on the absolute front lines of climate change and sea level rise. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So um, the island of Kiribati is how they pronounce it there wow. in Kiribati, Thank you. Uh, and they, it's a it's an incredible nation, um, and it's got um, a, it spans an area that is probably larger than the continental United States. It has three distinct island groupings. Um, the capital is a place called Tarawa. Um, if you were to visit it, um, it would not look like any other uh, Pacific island you've ever visited. Um, it's an incredibly uh, dense. Um, it's incredibly, in terms of population, uh, the population demographics is um, very, very young. Um, and it's it's been described to me as uh, a population density about that of Manhattan. Um, they have a very poor water and sewer. Um, the overall uh, GDP is is very small. I I don't. It was, a few years ago, it was about eighteen hundred dollars. Um, Per person per year in in Kiribati, so it's a it's a relatively poor country, um, but they're very rich in in fisheries. Oh, and I should have mentioned it's a very flat country too. It's um, it's um, you know I've been there several times, and um, depending on the tides, they could be washing out roads. One time I was there, it washed out an entire wing of the hospital. Um, and as you say, this is a country that is really on the front lines of climate change, and the new government is trying to figure out ways to address this. Um, the old government actually purchased some land in Fiji, um, thinking that eventually they might need to have an ability to relocate some of their people to a higher land. Um, the current government is uh, taking a slightly different approach, trying to do their best to manage their land and to try to uh, deal with some of the climate change issues um, there um, in Kiribati. Um, it's a remarkable, resilient people. Um, they've been through a lot, and um, it's, it's, a, it's truly a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, fisheries are a huge part of their GDP, and I don't know the exact number, but it's certainly more than 50% of all the revenue that comes to the government comes from fishing. And specifically how it comes to them, it comes from foreign governments who want to have access to the right to fish within their waters, and then they pay the government for that right. Um, the United States, for example, uh, pays the government of Kiribati uh, for the right to fish in Kiribati. Some of this is actually done with Taiwanese flags vessels. It all gets a little bit complicated sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Spanish are there, the Chinese are there, the Taiwanese are there, and the government pulls in certainly over a hundred million dollars, and it's a fairly 
difficult and highly confidential uh, numbers, but the best estimates I've seen, it's probably approaching $200 million a year comes in from fishing revenue. It's definitely more than $100 million, so it's pretty darn important. Um, our project there, they were one of the first countries, and it was really remarkable, to declare a very large part of their ocean off limits to industrial fishing. It was in a place called the Phoenix Islands. They created what's known as the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. Um, and it is a truly remarkable place in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. And they uh, locked it off to fishing. And it was a, a remarkable move from a government. And it really set in place leadership position that other governments then tried to um, emulate. And in the case of uh, the Phoenix Islands, it's an area about the size of California that has now been closed to fishing. And we have a lot of satellite data to suggest that compliance is actually quite good. And it's a it's a big success story. Yeah, success stories are good, are yeah. good. Uh, another part of the world that I want to ask you about that I'm just fascinated by, you know, the poles, uh, Antarctica, the Arctic Ocean, um, especially just kind of, uh, again, places that seem so wild uh, and uh, open. And so I'm curious about fishing in those areas and, you know, the wrinkle of as climate change is occurring and as the ice is melting and especially you hear about the arctic sea becoming arctic ocean becoming more open uh and everyone kind of looking to get their stake in that area um yeah what's what's happening in these two poles of the world well it's interesting so um of course the arctic and the antarctic you know the antarctic by the word is the opposite of the arctic and we think of it as opposite on opposite sides of the poles but it's also opposite in the sense of of the conservation challenges and the governance. And uh, for example, in the Arctic, it, there's a small part of the Arctic that is what we call high seas, that is international waters, right in the central Arctic Ocean. But most of the Arctic, that what we think of as the Arctic is actually within the real estate of Russia, the United States, and Canada. Mm -hmm. And Russia, in fact, is probably half of the Arctic. The Antarctic, on the other hand, is, um, claimed by several countries, owned by no one, and there's now being operated under an international agreement uh, um, through an organization called the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Living Marine Resources, or CAMELAR, as we talk about it. Okay. So what that means, if you want to do conservation in the Antarctic, you have to go through this international institution and get them to agree almost on what we call a consensus basis for any management that takes place in Antarctica. So if you're trying to do conservation in the Arctic, you typically work with each one of these countries individually. Can you get them to restrict fishing appropriately, create MPAs appropriately? If you're in Antarctica, you have to work with this international body. Mm. Um, we have have we have uh, several grants in both places uh, because of the reasons you would imagine. They are changing very quickly. They're incredibly important ecologically to the planet. And in the case of the Arctic, um, it's an incredibly important to the people that live up there. They, they are truly also on the front line of climate change. Um, they are seeing dramatic changes in, in their way of life. And the more that we can, I believe, uh, protect that way of life and give them some resilience to help manage this change, uh, the better off they are. And so some of our grants are trying to do just that. Um, and so we have grants in Canada, in Russia. Um, we used to have some grants in Alaska um, that are about helping to improve fisheries management and establish some of these long-term protected areas. Um, one of the success stories that we don't hear a lot about here in the American press 
is that Russia and President Putin in particular has been very ambitious and very successful in creating protected areas in the Russian Arctic. In fact, the largest protected area right now in the Arctic is in Russia. Um, and it was declared, um, and this might be very similar to the United States, it was declared right before his presidential election in uh, March of 2018. Um, and it's around the new Siberian islands and it's really a, another remarkable place. Um, there was a massive protected area created the world's largest in Antarctica. Um, and this was really a direct result of some aggressive work from Secretary Kerry and President Obama. Uh, they personally lobbied a lot of world leaders to get this consensus in this international institution. And they created what's called the Ross Sea uh, Marine Protected Area. And it's over a million square kilometers of um, fully protected area in some places and very strongly protected in others. It's a, it was a remarkable success story. It took probably six or seven years of international negotiations to do that one, wow. where in the case of the new Siberian islands in Russia, you know, that took probably only two to three years just to give you a flavor of, of how it's different. Okay. And what, and what's, what are the protections? Are they really protecting from commercial fishing in these parts of the world? Or is this more protecting from, you know, mining and other ocean exploration or what's, what, what would be the pressure on the, the ecosystem in those places? So the pressure on the ecosystem in the Antarctic is by and large fishing. Um, and depending on who you talk to, whaling. Um, uh, the, um, but that is even changing now that Japan has recently agreed to get out of the Southern Ocean for its whaling. So right now, the only really resource extraction happening in Antarctic is fishing. Um, and the primary species there is what we know of here in the United States is Chilean sea bass. Mm. Um, it's technically, it's called Antarctic toothfish. It's a slight different species than the, the Chilean toothfish, um, but that's the primary species. It's a very large, um, slow-growing predator um, that is fished by several different countries. Um, the other big fishery in Antarctic is what we call krill. Um, this is a relatively small uh, shrimp-like species uh, done in big nets that is used for um, uh, feeding salmon. It's used for vitamin supplements. Um, they essentially grind it up in various ways and process it into fish meal and fish oil. Um, and that's been uh, generally a growing fishery in Antarctica. So Ooh. those are the two big threats. And, and krill is important because, as you would imagine, a lot of critters feed on that, whether it's the killer whales, the seals, the penguins. It's, it's kind of the base of the food chain in Antarctica. Sure. Um, the pressures in the Arctic are, again, very different. Um, there you have not a very large commercial fishery at all because it's been covered in ice. Um, you have very uh, small and probably completely sustainable um, um, uh, native fisheries that are going on in, in all of those countries up there. The biggest threats is probably some of the oil and gas development, particularly in Russia, uh, but also in the in the United States um, increasingly, um, as well as the what I'll call the industrialization of the Arctic. Um, we're seeing for the first time ever now uh, shipping lanes and ships transiting the Arctic with the sea ice coming down. We're likely to see lots of other growth of the populations up there, uh, some of the various support facilities. Um, as oil and gas gets built, you're going to see production facilities come online up there. And so I think it's a it's a bigger threat in the Arctic for what we would think of as more traditional kind of energy intensive resource exploitation kind of activities to happen in the Arctic. Huh. Um, 
I, I want to follow up on the uh, the the whaling by Japan. There's been it was just in the news very recently. Lots of uh, activity on social media and and uh, a lot of people outraged at Japan uh, going out there and and you know hunting whales and so forth. Um, and people were like, "What are they doing? This is 2019. Are we? Are we? Is this? This is not you know 1919 or 1819. So, uh, what's going on with Japan and the whaling? So, um. Um, I might have a slightly different view on this than than many, um, um, but uh, there are three countries in the world right now that do whaling, um, Japan, Norway, and Iceland. Um, there's a little bit of other whaling that happens uh, incidentally, or um, I would say at a very, very small scale from indigenous communities in um, some in the Caribbean, uh, some in Alaska, North America. Um, and then there's some more incidental whaling that happens um, from other countries like Korea. But basically, I would say this is a remarkable success story that we have as the world. We, you know, the whaling moratorium came into effect um, several decades ago, and by and large, with some exceptions, we've seen whale populations really go up. And I think it's it's an overall it's a remarkable success story. Um, the, the International Whaling Commission, though, has been a, a very um, a moribund and polarized international institution with lots of factions going back and forth, in large part because Iceland, Japan, and Norway were continuing to do various larger scale whaling operations. Um, and Japan made a decision only recently to essentially leave the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, because they felt that that body was not giving them the authorization that they wanted and needed to do the whaling that they wanted to under a sustainable regime, which is what Japan said they wanted to do. Um, Japan's view was that the IWC was supposed to regulate whaling, not prohibit whaling. Mm -hmm. And they were frustrated after years and years of not getting that body to allow them to do what they wanted to do. And so they made a decision to stop whaling in Antarctica and to only whale on a sustainable basis in the waters around Japan. I actually look at this um, twofold. I look at it, one, as probably a good story for the whales. Um, I think the net effect is going to be less whales being caught. It remains to be seen if that's the case. If Japan keeps to its limits within its own um, with its own EEZ, which it says it's going to do, but if it does that, it's going to be less whales caught because they're now getting out of the Antarctic and they're essentially not going to increase the amount of whales they're catching around Japan. So for the whales, that's a net plus. The net the the downside of all of this is the international rule of law and the international cooperation that we need to solve some of these uh, problems in the world. You know, I always kind of felt that if we couldn't figure out whaling, we're never going to figure out climate change, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is um, this is the, the sad part of that decision that Japan made. But I, I think overall, um, this is not a view maybe shared by many in the conservation community. This is going to be a net plus for the whales. Um, although it's probably not a net plus for some of the conservation challenges that we have to face going forward as a, as a world. Interesting. So it sounds like maybe a lot of the media coverage out there just wasn't, they didn't have the proper context or uh, talk to the right people to kind of get to get that background and understand really uh, the full equation that's going on here. Very interesting. And it's also a little bit, I've, you know, I've uh, probably spent a little bit more time in Japan than the average person. And I, 
I have at least some more understanding, I think, of, of where they're coming from on all of this. And again, I don't want to take sides on all of this, but I, I think um, by and large that whales being killed, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Uh, last couple of questions here. You know, you, you, you're able to go around the world and, and see a lot of these different places, uh, be involved in a lot of these projects. Um, you've been doing it for a while. And just I'm, I'm curious about what that's like and where you'd put your your level of optimism about the direction that, uh, you know, things are going when it comes to, you know, sustainability of, of fisheries around the world. How do you how do you feel about things? I it's a, um, it's easy to get, um, you know, to get overwhelmed in this field. I've been doing conservation work now at uh, different levels for 40 years. And, um, you know, when you wake up and read the New York Times about, um, in the last couple of weeks, about um, ocean temperatures increasing, you know, 40, 50% faster than we thought, or the ice melting faster than we thought, um, it's really easy to get depressed. And, and um and certainly I have those days. Uh, I would say that in the context of the work we're doing in some of these communities with fisheries management, there are a lot of, of hopeful signs and things that bring you optimism. You know, when you see a, a community over a relatively short period of time really turn around their fisheries management and actually you see really positive impacts in the number and amount of fish that they've got or you see as a result of a protected area increases of biomass and you actually can watch on the water what the scientists said would happen actually happen and mm. you see you know economic activity come back we do see that and these are the sources of optimism and i can tell you also because in the case of fisheries, because it makes such economic sense to manage your fisheries for longer term generations, because of that bank account analogy I use, we are seeing most of the larger developed world doing better and better. You know, if we had had this interview 10 years ago, the biggest, um, the European Union would probably be the biggest single threat to the world's fisheries, wow. just given the nature of what they were doing. But even the European Union has really gone through a concerted effort to modernize a lot of its fisheries and make it more sustainably managed. Um, they're not doing it in the Mediterranean. I don't want to get too carried away with the positives here because there's still a lot of work to be done. But we are seeing, by and by, by and large, a lot of the larger data-rich fisheries getting better and better managed, and that's a great sign. I think the challenge for us going forward are these smaller communities, what we call small-scale fisheries, places in Asia, in Africa, in the Caribbean. I think this is going to be really some of the challenges going forward that, that we have to work on. Um, for me personally, you know, it's um, my passport is, is very thick. Uh, I spend a lot of time in airplanes and, and we're spending less and less time in airplanes because of technology like this, which is awesome. Um, but I will say that the work is inspiring when you meet these people. And, and that's, I think, the, the part of it that, that keeps me going is you have people who have this passion. You have governments that are functioning. You have, you have a, a spirit of really trying to solve problems that you see around the world that you don't always see in places like the United States these days that I find you know, very optimistic in some of my international work. Interesting. Uh I guess in, in closing, I'm curious about ways that the average person who cares about the sustainability of, of fisheries and, and the world's fish population, um, 
things that that they could do to make you know their small impact uh, on the situation. I am going to be talking with um, you know the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch people about their guide of of what people should eat, shouldn't eat, so forth. But I'm I'm curious what you would say to somebody out there that wants to do whatever they can to make an impact. Um. There's no question that, and you'll talk to the moderator, they're, they've got a wonderful program and they are helping people understand what seafood is safer to eat than other seafood. And I think all of that is tremendously valuable. And the more informed consumers can be when they go to the supermarket, that's all good. Um, I will say my single most important from the work that I do would be get involved politically in work that we're doing. Um, you know, here in the United States, we have a very real threat of offshore oil and gas development along the Atlantic coast. Um, there's no place for that, in my opinion, these days. Um, there's, um, we have serious issues of climate change. We have serious issues of, of what happens in, in spills. Uh, we are seeing a movement built up and down the Atlantic coast of, of a bipartisan movement of communities, of NGOs, of hotel owners all coming out against um, you know, expanding oil and gas development along the East Coast. And to me, that's hugely important. And I think, I don't care if you're on an island in the middle of the Pacific, um, or if you're on the, you know, in, um, in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, these are, the more we're aware of how these debates are unfolding in our governments, and the more we can express our opinions for conservation, it really does have an impact. And I will say that if I were to say to one thing people could do, that would be it. Um, if you want to get really creative about this and, and start to think about what we as Americans can do, I think we have to start looking much more beyond our shoreline and into other countries. Mm. Um, you know, we have, by and large, here in the United States, a very well-informed population. You know, the BBC's Blue Planet 2, um, it, it got record viewership here in the United States and in the UK. And and we're generally well-informed and, and we really do care in the United States. But the truth is that you don't find that same knowledge and culture and video productions in Vietnam. There are not Chinese storytellers. There are not Indonesian storytellers by and large telling these kind of stories that we are aware of here. And so the other message I would have is let's help spread this knowledge we have here in the United States and in Europe to some of these other countries where that's where we're going to win or lose on the oceans to the extent that we can get more conservation happening in China or in Africa or in the Caribbean. This is some of the real challenges we face as a planet. Fantastic. Well, Chuck, it was great to, to catch up with you and this was super informative. I appreciate the time uh, and I look forward to continuing to follow uh, what you're doing and, and the work of Oceans 5 and all the, the projects you guys support. So thanks so much. My pleasure. It's always good to see you. All right. Take care. Bye. You're in the water loop. <laughs>